Hey, real quick, would you like to join me for a fun and super practical challenge to increase your online visibility? The Visibility Kickstarter Challenge is hosted by my friend Alina Vincent, who, if you don't know, she is the queen of online challenges. <clears throat> and that means that this is going to be one of the most actionable, value-packed, and fast-to-implement challenges that you have ever been a part of. I recently used her challenge method in my last launch, and it was the most effective challenge we have ever run, and it was easier than any, ever, any challenge we've ever run uh, as well. It is completely free, so if you want to join me, I'll be there. Head over to jenlaner.com forward slash 084 to sign up. And again, that's jenlaner, L-E-H-N-E-R.com forward slash 084. Hey guys, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and you're listening to the Front Row Entrepreneur Podcast with our girl, Jen. My guest today really needs no introduction unless you are my mom who said, who is this again and why are you so excited? He is the best-selling author of 18 books that have been translated into 35 languages. He's talked about everything from the post-industrial revolution to ways that ideas spread, marketing, quitting, leadership. He's written a blog post every day for years and years and consequently has one of the most popular blogs in the entire world. In 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. He is credited with inventing commercial email and he's one of the first people to ever give a TED Talk. He created the Alt-MBA he describes himself as someone who notices things for a living. He uses the best metaphors I've ever heard, and he believes in causing a ruckus. Ladies and gentlemen, here is Seth Godin. I'm just going to jump right in, uh, if that's okay. Um, I want to let you know that that there's a quote from you that has been sitting on my website since the day that my website first began. And it's also something that I use uh, every time that I give a presentation. It's like, you said it so well that there's no point in me trying to like say it better. And the quote was, is, how can you squander even one more day not taking advantage of the greatest shifts of our generation? How dare you settle for less when the world has made it so easy for you to be remarkable? So thank you for that quote. Do you still feel that way? More than ever. I mean, there are forces working against us. There are forces of compliance and surveillance and manipulation. But uh, if you think about what life was like in 1960, 70, or 80, the chances that individuals have to speak up and be heard have never been bigger. I agree. And I want to talk a lot about your latest book, This Is Marketing, because it rocked my world as a marketer. And I would like to say on behalf of all marketers everywhere, because I know, I know that they agree uh, that they feel, they feel a lot of gratitude to you for writing it because you made us feel really good. Like we matter that like we can make a difference in, in a good way. Well, I made some people feel lousy because I also reminded you that you have a responsibility and you're not allowed to say, I'm just doing my job. That's true. That's true. But does it matter that I'm a marketer or am I leaving a legacy? Is any of this, does this matter at all if anybody knows how to use Facebook ads or to get their word out there or, you know, 
whether or not they know how to write a good email sequence. Like, is that, does that even matter? And, and what I've always said, well, is that I'm serving a lot of people who they're changing the world. So, you know, I haven't started uh, a nonprofit that helps people understand this new disease called lipedema, but I've got a client who is doing that. So if I can help her get the word out, then, then maybe I am making a difference. But then you took it one step further and you said, no, like you're, you're, you're changing the culture, or at least that's what you should aim to do. Can you talk about that? Every single person who has done work that mattered has been a marketer. Um, Albert Einstein's ideas would not have changed physics if he didn't know how to write the paper that other physicists had read. Um, that the Reverend King's work on the civil rights movement wouldn't have had any impact if he hadn't organized a tribe and made it persistent. These are the acts of marketing. And so, yes, you do something more pure marketing than Albert Einstein did because you leave the physics part out. But the fact is that if our work matters, it's going to be up to us for that to be true. That means we have these tools and we get to use the tools to either uplift or tear down. We get to use the tools either to connect or to separate. And if you can figure out how to use the tools in a way that you are proud of, if you can start taking responsibility for your clients and how they use the tools, if you can keep the cycle going in the right direction, then yes, it matters because what you're doing is establishing a forward ratchet that makes things better. You also, uh, another thing that you talked about in the book that I don't know, really gave me a great sense of relief is the notion of the smallest viable audience that suddenly I didn't have to have an email list of 100,000 people. Uh, could you talk about the smallest viable yeah, audience? I mean, we could talk about it the whole time. So let's, let's try to dive in. The idea of mass, which came from television, is magical when you can get it at a discount, but you can't get it at a discount anymore. And as we just saw from Heinz cratering, because it turns out the public doesn't want average stuff for average people as much as it used to, the path to making a difference and being proud of your work is not to seek average, because average and mediocre are the same thing. The path instead is to say, what's the smallest group I can live with that has a unique connected set of values, dreams, desires, and fears, how do I delight that group so much that they would miss me if I was gone without compromise? Because it turns out if you do that, they will tell their friends. But Seth, what if like you, you aren't a Pez dispenser expert, right? Or you aren't like an orchid grower. You, you know, I would say like for me, my audience is they've I talk I've I've talked about the things that I'm passionate about. I teach the things that I care about. And you know, it's like the audience emerged that they're all kind of my age, they're women, they're at a certain place in their life. And so there's that. But beyond that, I don't think people tend to think of themselves as anything but average. I mean, it's hard to think of yourself as extraordinary. So when you say average things for average people, I mean, I think a lot of people then, or at least me, I think, well, how do I, how do I, how do I deliver something above average? I mean, I guess I could do it the best way that I can, but it's, I guess it's not, it's not anything super unique. Yeah. Or here's the thing, Jen, like not only do you want the stuff 
that I'm talking about to be effective and true, you also want it to be easy. And I can't offer it easy. What I can point out is that the effort that you would need to bring out your actual magic, your actual uniqueness is worth the journey. I refuse to accept that you are average. I think that average is a choice that we make because it's easier in the short run. But what we know is that with an enormous amount of guts and persistence and awareness, you can develop skill. And if you aim that skill in a particular direction, you can become a meaningful specific instead of a wandering generality. Wow, that's so good. How do you come up with, well, how do you turn these So I stole the meaningful specific wandering generality thing from Zig Ziglar, and I usually give him credit. I had just sipped a cup of tea, so I didn't have time to, to blurt that part out. <laughs> but the rest of it is exactly what I am talking about, which is I don't grow orchids. I don't watch television. I don't go to meetings. This is what I do. And I say and write a lot of things that aren't clever phrases, but because I practice a lot, I've gotten better at a certain kind of language about a certain topic because that is the place where I am seeking to not be average. That most of the people who do marketing are afraid. And because they're afraid, they're copying everybody and they're looking for shortcuts and trends and what time to post on Twitter and how to do it like everybody else. And then they're surprised mm -hmm. when they get average results. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That the only way to get above average results is to be obsessively focused on a small group of people who want to hear from you. But you also talk about the magic of good enough. So, so how does that play into this thinking? Certain things you do have to be significantly beyond good enough. That's what makes them remarkable. But everything else you do simply has to be good enough. That's all. So I'll give you an example. If you're going to a meeting at a bank tomorrow, it doesn't matter if you're wearing the single best outfit you ever own or your hair is perfect. All that matters is that your clothes are good enough that they don't notice them because that's not how they're going to judge you anyway. On the other hand, if you're Beyonce and you're going to an awards ceremony, you can't just wear clothes that are good enough because we're, we're judging you on how you dressed. So what is it? that you want to own? What is it that you want to claim? Everything else you do can be good enough. Okay. All right. So I love, 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 love what you say about authenticity. And the reason that I love it is because I get really mm -hmm. sick of buzzwords. And I think we there's so many buzzwords that you hear them so much, then they really completely lose their meaning. And I think authenticity is right up there. So can, can you talk about authenticity? Well, I think authenticity is a sham. It's overrated and it's a trap. Um, and it's a form of hiding behind a version of, well, it's not good enough. And here's what I mean. If we're going to do business with a professional, whether that's a professional lawyer or a professional uh, counselor or somebody who's going to train us on something, we are not seeking to know the ins and outs of that person's life. We want them to make a promise and then keep it. That's what we buy. Make a promise and keep it. So the authentic you is a distraction. That's not what we hired. We hired the you you presented to us that is on offer. And, you know, the same thing is true for politicians or musicians that, yeah, a lot of people watched Amy Winehouse self-destruct, but I would argue that's not part of mm. being a musician. 
part of being a musician is even if you have a sore throat, you show up and you play. And you play in a way that we're glad you did because we really didn't sign up for the Kardashian-style drama that you could have offered us. And so I'm not arguing that you should do work that hollows you out or that you should do work that you can't believe in. What I'm arguing is pick a brand, a promise that you can stand behind and then stand behind it and stop whining. Right. It's just kind of self-indulgent a little bit, right? To be Yeah. And I think that, you know, I am not saying that in your personal life, you should present to the people you love in a way that's inauthentic. Not at all. We're having a conversation about how we engage with the culture, how we engage with our customers, how we engage with our prospects. In that sense, what people want is consistent, not authentic. And if you are lucky enough for those two things to be the same, well then, bravo, good for you. But I am pretty sure that every actor who's ever played King Lear is not actually a horrible jerk. They're just playing one on stage. (laughs) Well, we would hope. So, right. So just show up as the thing that you promise. It's, I guess what I think about also with authenticity is this idea that we have to bear our souls, right? And share all this uh, inside stuff that maybe, I don't know, maybe my people don't really, really care about that. They don't really need to hear about that. And I would argue if that's your brand, you're going to be inauthentic really soon because you're going to feel like you have to bear your soul even when you don't feel like it. Right. Okay, so you said culture beats strategy so much that culture is strategy. So the second part of that, I, I could you clarify that? Okay, so Michael Porter wrote the standard book on strategy. Strategy is supposed to be like playing chess. You know, we're going to be the low cost provider of this item because our competitors have a higher cost structure, blah, blah, blah. And I love strategy and it makes a lot of sense. However, when it comes down to it, if your organization has even more than three people in it, what's really going to determine how everyone acts every day is the culture in and between the people in your organization and the public. So when Howard Schultz shut down Starbucks for four hours a couple about a year ago, that cost the company millions and millions of dollars. Why did he do that? He could have just sent everyone a YouTube video who worked for them and they could have watched it on their own time. Why did he spend that money? Because he was trying to change the culture and the message wasn't to the employees, it was to the high-ranking employees, to the 200 top officers. And he said to those folks, you know what? I think this is so serious. I am taking a hit and all of your stock options just went down in value. So don't have any doubts about what I think of as being important that starts to change the culture because you made a hard decision. And so when push comes to shove three months later and it's a difficult situation, you can bet the senior vice president of retail operations remembers how it's supposed to be around here and makes a different decision. That becomes the culture, but the culture becomes the strategy because that's what the company stands for. Uh Aha. Okay. All right. Another big sigh of relief in the book, or just, I don't know, it was, it was just very reassuring was all your conversation about pricing and charging and stealing um, and all of that stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, okay. Let's start with this. Uh, Price is a story. It is not 
based on how much something costs. So if you buy a bottle of Chanel number no. five or you buy a, a Ferrari, you are not paying for how much it costs to make it. You are paying because the price you are paying helps you understand what the thing is supposed to be. And a lot of people, particularly among your client base, a lot of individuals who are freelancers slash entrepreneurs wrestle with pricing because they think they're not worth it. And it's not up to you to decide if you're worth it. It's up to the customer to decide. And there are lots of customers that would prefer the responsibility and status that comes with paying more than to be the person who always buys the cheapest thing. And if you are the person who is providing the cheapest thing, you don't get to say to yourself or your customers, well, what did you expect? It was cheap. Because after they buy it, they still expect it to be good. So charge what you need to charge to do the work that you are proud of. That will find you the customers who are ready to pay that. But no one's going to pay it because you deserve it. And no one's going to pay it because you're working really hard. They're going to pay it because it makes them feel like they did something smart. Yeah, like you gave this brilliant example of somebody asking someone to make a donation to a charity, like a like a ridiculous amount of money, like millions of dollars. And and the person asking thought, oh, well, I would never don't I would never give that amount of money. And then in fact, in thinking that way, she was stealing or not stealing, right. de- uh, denying no, this she guy. Was stealing. Okay. Let's be really clear. She was stealing. Let me explain okay. what I mean. If you've ever given $50 to charity, I'm going to assert you did it because it was worth $100. That, that $50 bought you $100 worth of joy or satisfaction or status or something. If it wasn't worth $100, you wouldn't have given the 50 because there's someplace else you could have given the 50 that would have given you that feeling. So every donation to charity is a bargain. No one does it if it's overpriced. So can we agree on that? We can definitely agree on that. If that's true, and you have $100 million in the bank, what will it take you to have the feeling of being generous, of a philanthropist, of stretching? Well, maybe it would take spending $2 million and having your name on a building. If you were going to do that and could show your kids, the ones you never spent time with when they were growing up, that all of that hard work was worth it because now there's a building at this university or at this hospital with your name on it. That's $5 million worth of value that you got for $2 million. And what that means is if the fundraiser doesn't make the pitch, she stole $3 million in value from the donor who doesn't get that feeling. And she stole $2 million from the charity that didn't get the money. And you could, and so you could you could also translate that into the freelancer slash entrepreneur who could be denying someone the opportunity to invest in themselves at a higher level to commit more uh, to their own professional or personal development, right? Right. So if you don't if you don't believe that the thing you offer is worth it, please stop offering it. <laughs> right. We right. got to begin there. This is not about a socially sanctioned form of stealing, right. taking, tricking. This is service. So one way to think about it, someone's drowning. You have a life preserver. Should you toss it to them? Well, it will take them some effort to grab the life preserver. You'll have to interrupt them to get them to know you have the life preserver. Should you throw them the life preserver? Well, if you say to yourself, I don't know, I'm not sure, then 
you're going to kill them. On the other hand, if you throw them the life preserver, you're going to save their life. So is that a heroic act or a selfish act to throw the person the life preserver? Well, it's both because it's heroic because you saved their life and it's selfish because now you get credit as saving somebody's life. So the same thing is true when we market a service to somebody. If we think our service is worth $100 and we're only charging 50, then it's a gift, right? We're saying to people, if you can get through the tension and the fear of spending 100 bucks or spending 50 bucks, my perception from my experience is $100 worth of value will float to you. And if that's not really true, then you're a selfish narcissist and you should get out of this line of work. But if it's really true, then what are you waiting for? Okay. Well, we've talked about entrepreneurs slash freelancers now a couple of times. And I do want you to, if you could just clarify the difference, but I wanted to also throw in there that one thing that I hear a lot of times uh, from the people in my audience is they'll confide in me that they don't feel like they have a real business, that that they that they talk about being in business, but I guess the nature of what they're doing is a lot of like throwing spaghetti at the walls, maybe not having any systems in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk about that too. Okay. So they probably don't have a real business, but I'll explain why in one second. <laughs> okay. But first, I need to explain that entrepreneur is a word. Entrepreneur, entrepreneur, entrepreneur. It is not a trademark. It is a word. And we should be allowed to use that word if we're doing anything except selling ads in a magazine. Just mm-hmm. saying that, you don't have to comment. Moving on, <laughs> there is a difference between an entrepreneur and a freelancer. Entrepreneurs build something bigger than they are. They use other people's money to invest in assets, to build an organization that one day they can sell. Freelancers, I'm a freelancer, get paid when they work. They show up and they do the work with their own two hands. If you're a freelancer, Don't start hiring little junior freelancers and pretend you're an entrepreneur because all you're doing is hiring people who aren't as good as you and then passing them off to your customers like you. And that can work for a little while. And ad agencies are like as big as you can possibly get at that scale. But better to to move up the freelancer ladder. And the way you do that is by getting better clients, doing better work, and charging more because it's worth more, not by pretending you're an entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur, don't do the work. Your job is to hire people to do the work. Your job is to build systems and processes so that you make money when you sleep, so that you are serving people at a bigger scale without you doing the work yourself. And the danger, which I fell into, almost killed me, is saying you're an entrepreneur and then hiring the cheapest, best available person at every turn. And you know who that person is? You. So what you end up doing is hiring yourself to work for free as a freelancer in your own entrepreneurial business. And now you got problems because you're not doing the job of the entrepreneur. You're not going to be able to scale. You're not going to be able to pay yourself fairly. And the whole thing is just going to be a stress fest. So don't do that. Okay. All right. And what about the people? Who the people like- who tell you they don't really have a business are freelancers. And great. Be a freelancer. Being a freelancer is fantastic. But just be a freelancer. Realize you only get 40 whatever hours a week to work. Sell those hours either to the appropriate customer who is paying you an appropriate fee or spend those hours getting much better at what you do so that 
you can get better customers. But don't pretend that you're some small version of a giant company because you're not. Okay. This is my last question about the book. And then I've just got a couple of like rapid fire things I want to ask you Ready. sort of like curiosity stuff. Okay. But this is, this one's still about the book. And that is why is asking, how do I get the word out the wrong question? Because it's selfish. Because what it says is if just everyone, if everyone knew what I did, then the orders would pile in. You already have a small group of people you're serving. Why aren't they telling the others? Solve that problem. If your customers tell the others, you don't have a getting the word out problem. And if we look at industries like music and books, where there is no way to get the word out really, what we see is that every bestseller is a surprise bestseller. It works because a small group is so moved, they tell the others. If that's not happening, it's because the work you're doing is either inherently private, like giving people massages, which no one ever talks about, or it's not remarkable enough for people to talk about. So change that. Don't try to figure out how to get on the homepage of Facebook because Facebook doesn't have a homepage. Okay. Okay. All right. Now this is the rapid fire part. Okay. And most of this is just like satisfy my own curiosity, but I figure if I'm curious, I know that right, other well, people I, are. I can't promise I'm going to answer, but let's I know. I will not cross, cross any boundaries. I know that you're a private, private kind of guy. Okay. Who are your mentors? I have heroes. Oh, heroes. I knew that. I knew that. I meant to change it. Heroes. Who are your heroes? Uh, <clears throat> they range from uh, Sarah Kay and Sarah Jones and Jacqueline Novogratz, uh, Liz Jackson, people who are uh, spiritual warriors in the path toward uh, justice, who are putting themselves out on the line, to um, people who understand how to navigate the world of culture and uh how ideas spread. And that can range from Kevin Kelly to uh, Bernadette Jiwa to the late David Ogilvie. Um, and then there are people who are just the kind of passionate humans who don't settle for the conventional narrative. My friend Susan Piver, who runs the biggest online sangha. There, there's, these are folks who show up because they can, not because it's the easiest path. And that's kind of what you're doing as well, right? I mean, you 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 help people. You help a lot of people. You don't consult, but you do help people. Well, it's not an accident. These people are my heroes. I'm trying on a good day to be a little bit more like them. <laughs> Got it. All right. This is like a hard question. And so it might make, you might feel on the spot, but what's the best advice you ever received? Uh, you should ignore good advice. Okay. Um, <laughs> Do you participate in social media at all? No Facebook, no Twitter, uh, no Instagram. I know how they work. Sometimes I use them under another name just to keep at it. We run some ads on Facebook for the Alt MBA and for the other workshops that we run. Uh, I feel like uh, in general, social media is not a positive for most people and it gets in the way of them doing better work. Are you addicted to your phone like the rest of us? No. And I'm going to ask you about the Alt-MBA in a minute, but your blog. So when I first learned about you and I started reading your blog, like I was, I was equally parts like 
just overjoyed because every single one of them was great. And also a little bit annoyed because I thought, how does he do this? He could get away with writing just such short things. But then I realized like, well, first of all, it doesn't matter the length because if you could say what you need to say in fewer words, all the better, but your consistency is like mind blowing. So are you writing these every single day? Do you batch them? And do you ever repeat any of your content? I don't repeat my content on purpose. There's 7,500 posts, so I don't remember them all. Uh, I write every single day, but I don't write the post you read the day you read it, because that would mean waking up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> right. But writing a blog every day is still the best advice I can give most humans. Even if no one reads it, it is free. It is powerful. It is totally worth doing. Uh, and you, And what time do you get up? Oh, I don't know, five thirty or six. So you're you're a morning person. I'm a person person, and so if I'm awake, I'm trying to be awake. <laughs> if I'm asleep, I'm trying to be asleep. Okay, fair enough. Um, if you had chosen another career path, what would it have been? Oh, um, that's easy. I would be uh, the head of canoeing at Camp Arawan in northern Ontario, three hours north of Toronto. Okay, that sounds like a good gig. That's probably still open to you if you change it's your mind. It's the 43rd summer. I'll be up there this year. That's so exciting. Okay, do you have morning routines? Yeah, see, this is a dangerous place to go. Um, okay, and the reason it's a dangerous it. place to go is if we did a study of 15 successful, happy people and compared their morning routines, they would have nothing in common. So comparing... Copying someone's morning routine is not a way to expose yourself to the next step. It's a way to hide. And my advice to people instead is to say, what are you doing every day to insulate yourself from the things that you know are important? And instead of doing those things, do the important things. So what would be an example of something you would do to insulate yourself from? Well, uh, going to meetings, watching television, checking social media, okay. reading the newspaper, okay. making yourself a fancy breakfast. If those things are fueling your ability to do work that you're proud of that scares you, then keep doing them. But if you're not doing enough work that scares you, stop doing all of those things you're doing and just do the work that scares you instead. Yeah, but sometimes morning routines, like I, I like the question because I've adopted other people's stuff and it's made me better. So like morning pages or yoga or like not checking my phone when I wake up. So I adopted all that and I think I'm better. Well, yeah, because morning I mean, pages, the magic of Julia's idea is there's no place to hide when you're doing morning pages. Like you can hide for a little while, but now that you know, no one's ever going to read them and you're going to keep doing them. It's stupid to hide because no one's ever going to see it but you. And morning pages work because they expose you to the thing you didn't want to say. Right? Okay. So I'm yep. glad you do morning pages. And if morning pages work, you should keep doing them. But if you're a writer who's stuck even after doing morning pages for six months, then morning pages aren't the answer for you. Don't beat yourself up or hide in, in them. Do a different thing. Okay. How do you come up with such good metaphors? Because I come up with more bad metaphors than anybody else. I mean, is it a thing for you? Like I'm going to, I need to sit down and write, or, or when you think of them, do you jot them down or they just come to you? I mean, it's, you really well, have a good so, metaphor. So I'm a teacher. Going. That's what I do. And 
I don't teach from the same curriculum every day. I'm trying mm-hmm. to get better at teaching. And teaching, as far as I can tell, is metaphor. Because otherwise, you could just read the Wikipedia article and you'd know what was going on. Right? And so right. I, I practice teaching all the time. In this conversation I've had with you, I've discovered a bunch of things that I could now say in the future that I'm glad I did. But that's my learning is how do I engage with somebody else to make a point that gets them to say, oh, yeah, now I understand. Okay. What's your favorite book? Like just one. It doesn't have to be a marketing book, like any book. Like it's just you loved it so much. Uh, I would recommend your readers read The Art of Possibility. Okay. If you were just starting a business right now, what's the first thing you would do to build an audience? I would begin. No, Where? that's not the, you asked the first thing. Most people don't begin. So begin, figure out who you want to interact with. One person, two people, five people, create value for them. If you can't create value for five people, why on earth do you think you can create value for 50? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, oh, that's awesome. Okay, what's your favorite podcast? My podcast, akimbo.link. What's your second favorite well, podcast? I think there's nothing wrong with picking your own work. I spend more time on my podcast than anybody else's. And um, I do it because I love it. I listen to lots and lots of podcasts. And um, I can't give you just one because there are too many. Yeah, same here, actually. I don't think I could give you just one. No, I mean, yours would be my favorite. And then well, I would have a hard time naming, naming the others. Okay, let's see. How do you... No, I think we already answered that question. What's your favorite thing to do professionally? Like speak, write? The, my favorite thing is juxtaposed with my least favorite thing, which is why I'm doing so much less of my favorite thing. My favorite thing is getting on stage in front of the right audience in the right venue for an hour and planting some seeds that help them change. My least favorite thing is travel. And so the least favorite thing is weighing out over, winning out over the most favorite thing. And so travel is going way down which means that my new mace favorite thing is watching somebody in one of our workshops, whether it's the Alt MBA or the marketing seminar, uh, have a light bulb go on and you can see it in real time in the digital space. They used to be one thing and now there's someone else and there's no going back. That is the reason for my work. What is the Alt MBA? So the Alt MBA is the most effective thing I've ever built. It's a four-week intensive workshop. It takes two or three hours a day. People in 71 countries have taken it so far. Uh, it's not an MBA. It's better than an MBA. It teaches you how to see, how to make decisions, how to persuade other people. Uh, it's small groups, 120 people in a session with coaches, study groups of five people. I'm not in it. There's no guru in it. It's about projects and shipping the work. And it changes people. Okay. Well, Seth, um, this has been just a joy for me. You have no idea. And I know that when we hang up, I'm going to go, why didn't I ask him this thing? But I did ask you a lot of things and I'm happy that you took some time out of your day to to spend with me. Thank you so much. You've, you've just been uh, a really huge influence in my life and in my business. And uh, do you have any parting words? before we close. Oh, I don't think we're parting. I think it's on the same journey and I'm sure I'll see you down the road. Keep making the ruckus. Oh. 
Thanks so much, Seth. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you want links to all the books and heroes and other stuff that Seth mentioned, head over to show, the show notes page at jenlaner.com slash Seth. Also, if you aren't already a member of my free online classroom, The Front Row, head over to frontrowclassroom.com and join us and I'll see you next time.